The time is now. Volume 6, episode 122. This is Employment Law Now. I am Mike Schmidt, the host of this podcast and the vice chair of the Labor and Employment Department at Cozen O'Connor. Thank you so much for listening, as always. Really have a great episode planned for this one. It's not just good enough to have one high-ranking government official come on to the podcast, talk to us about issues of significance out there, but today I've got three for you. We've got the National Labor Relations Board General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo, who is unfortunately a little bit under the weather but still was gracious enough to talk with me. We also have the EEOC Commissioner Andrea Lucas with us, and we also have the Assistant Secretary of Labor at the United States Department of Labor for OSHA, Douglas Parker. All three of these impressive government officials spoke with me last week on a webinar that we presented here at Cozen O'Connor to talk a little bit about such things as how the public views their government agencies. What are their agencies doing right now with regard to some very important labor and employment issues? And what might we expect as we move into 2023? For those of you who missed that interview, that session, I am repurposing it here on today's podcast episode. And I hope you find it useful. Thank you so much, Michelle. That was a terrific panel. We have spent the better part of uh, the last two days uh, for this second annual Cozen O'Connor Employer Summit for 2022, talking about developments from the past year, uh, trends that we're seeing in 2022 and leading into 2023, and seeing, as you just heard for the past hour, how some employers uh, are feeling about this. Well, the one missing piece to all of this uh, are those who are in the government space, those who are directly involved with establishing and enforcing uh, the regulations that do impact employers and employees. And so I'm really honored uh, to finish off our last panel of this two-day summit um, with those who are in the government world, in the government space. Um, so I, a lot I want to get into. I wish I had five hours, six hours to talk with everybody here. There are so many issues I want to get to. And in the next hour, uh, hopefully we'll be able to get into some real substantive discussion uh, and keep it flowing. What I want to do first is uh, give a very brief introduction of our impressive panel and ask each of them the same question. And that is, what drove you? to want to give so much to public service and be part of a government agency. Let's talk first um, to our uh, great panelist, Jennifer Abruzzo, 
On July 22, 2021, Jennifer Bruzzo began serving as the general counsel for the National Labor Relations Board, also known as the NLRB. Uh, general counsel Bruzzo had previously worked for the NLRB for over two decades in six significant positions leading up to her current role as the board's general counsel. Immediately prior to her appointment in that role, Ms. Abruzzo served as special counsel for strategic initiatives for the Communications Workers of America. Um, general Counsel Abruzzo, I'm so happy to have you with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm going to just start by saying I have the flu. <laughs> ah. So um, I'm, I'm not sure how um, articulate I'll be, but I'll do my best. I, 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 your best will probably be a lot better than, uh, you know, 80% of our best. So thank you. I hope you feel uh, better and feel okay, at least for this hour. So what drove you to give so much to public service and, and want to be part of uh, government for such a large yeah, portion of Yeah, I your mean, career? I guess what I would start with is, and probably others might say the same, which is, you know, it started for me with my parents and the way I was raised. Um, and, you know, they instilled in me a, a tremendous work ethic and also to give back. Um, and so I took that to heart. And um, when I went to and, you know, I came from a uh, both of my parents were union members. And I saw where those negotiated wages and benefits helped us, where some of the other folks in my community didn't have those wages and benefits and suffered. Um, and so when I was in uh, law school, uh, while I was able to take employment discrimination law, um, it, I went to school at night and labor law wasn't provided uh, at night. And so I asked the labor law professor if I could clerk for him and I did so I could get a balanced sort of approach to just the whole labor and employment law. Um, and then uh, he actually was the one that said, I have recommended you for a job at the NLRB, and if it's offered to you, you better take it. Uh, so I didn't necessarily go into law school thinking that I would end up at a government agency, but it certainly was the best career choice for me. As you mentioned, I've, I've now been with the board just about 25 years. I'm on my 25th year now. Uh, and it's just a one, it's a, it's a small but mighty agency. And uh, I, I very much am all about um, ensuring that we are comporting with our congressional mandate to encourage collective bargaining and the free association of workers in this country. No, thank you. And we're going to get into um, a little bit about what you've been doing to try to further that mission. Um, another uh, small but mighty agency, uh, the EEOC, um, so happy to uh, also have Andrea Lucas, who is a current commissioner on the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, with a term expiring on July 1st of 2025. Prior to her appointment to the EEOC, she was a member of the Labor and Employment and Litigation Practice Groups uh, of Gibson Dunn where she represented and advised employers and boards of directors on a wide variety of employment-related issues. Uh, she has also extensively focused on providing COVID-19-related counseling to employers to help them keep their businesses operational or safely reopen their workplaces 
while also at the same time protecting employees' rights under federal and state employment laws. Commissioner Lucas, so great to have you. Thanks so much, Mike. It's a delight to be here. Um, you know, uh, like Jennifer said, uh, certainly my, my parents instilled a sense of service in me, and I'd been interested in government service for a long time, although um, hadn't had an opportunity up until two years ago to, to enter the government. Um, and, and for me, as a Republican appointee in particular, uh, it's really important for me to push back against some stereotypes about conservatives and Republicans in the government. Um, some of my mentors have instilled in me a really deep conviction that there's absolutely a way to be a strong conservative and also care deeply about civil rights. So I'm uh, really very interested in, in trying to strike that balance um, during my time in the commission to be both passionate about preventing discrimination and promoting compliance and working with employers and promoting healthy businesses and also being deeply committed to high quality enforcement to remedy discrimination that also occurs. So um, that, that desire to try to find nuance and balance uh, motivates me a lot here in this job. Well, thank you very much. Such an important uh, notion in terms of trying to dispense with labels uh, to get things done. Um, it's such a, it's such an interesting and important concept, um, and I look forward to having a great discussion with you today. Um, lastly, but certainly not least, I'm also extremely um, happy to have Douglas Parker with us on this panel. Uh, Douglas Parker was sworn in as Assistant Secretary of Labor on November 3rd, 2021. He previously served in the Obama administration as Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy in the Department of Labor's Mine, Safety, and Health Administration, and was also a member of the Biden-Harris transition team focused on worker health and safety issues. Before serving in the Obama administration, Secretary Parker was a partner at the law firm Mooney Green, Seindon, Murphy, and Welsh in Washington, D.C., and also he began his legal career as a staff attorney at the United Mine Workers of America. Uh, Secretary Parker, thanks so much for being with us as well. Uh, thank you, Mike. My pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Uh, my, uh, as you mentioned, I was a union side labor attorney. Um, I practiced law for about 12 years, both at the mine workers and then at uh, the law firm that you mentioned. Um, similar to um, Jennifer and Andrea, I, I, my parents instilled in me a sense of service through um, their community activities, and I always wanted to give back. Uh, I saw my work with working people at the unions as a form of that. When um, when President Obama was elected, um, I became very interested in making a shift towards um, public service. I was very inspired by his campaign and his, his vision uh, and actively sought out a, a, a position. Um, I was ultimately contacted by a former um, director of health and safety at the United Mine Workers, Jermaine, who asked me to uh, joined him at the Mine Safety and Health Administration, not because I was necessarily a technical expert on mining, but because I understood the culture and the workers who were um, who were served by the agency. And um, I was um, I was really struck at how exciting and uh, dynamic government was compared to sort of the stereotypes about it. At least that was my experience at MSHA. And the opportunities um, to get things done for people to improve their lives uh, in a way that I hadn't anticipated, and also just the um, um, how interesting it was 
particularly after kind of practicing law for, for 12 years to see the kind of wider range of possibilities that you have uh, in a slightly different position as policymaker. And so um, while that, you know, while I ultimately left that position uh, for personal reasons in 2015, uh, when I later had opportunities to join Cal OSHA and, and now Federal OSHA, you know, I, I, I was um, happy to do that and serve again, uh, not only because of the importance of, of service uh, and, and doing good for people, but also um, just how much I, I have enjoyed uh, the work. No, and uh, we're really uh, happy and honored to have you uh, with us as well. Um, so I want to start, we're going to get into and spend a good amount of time in this hour talking about some of the really hot issues and important issues uh, that uh, all three of you have been spending a good amount of time on. Before we do that, I, I don't want to assume that all of our attendees know exactly what the agencies do, what the process is for uh, engaging in particular initiatives or proceedings, uh, and certainly what your respective roles may be at those agencies. So I wanted to start by giving everybody watching a little perspective on how things get done at your agencies from a process standpoint uh, and what your respective roles are. Commissioner Lucas, uh, let's start with you. Uh, how does the EEOC decide which litigation or enforcement matters to pursue and what guidance the commission may choose to issue? So the EUC is a bipartisan, uh, multi-headed agency. It's got a five-member leadership panel. I'm one of uh, five commissioners. And in terms of policymaking, um, each of the five are co-equals. The chair traditionally controls the agenda, however, of what's put before the commission for a vote. And in order for the commission to take any formal action, a majority of the commissioners have to vote on it. So that's initiating litigation, filing amicus briefs, issuing regulations or formal policy guidance. Um, and then in terms of guidance, while formal policy guidance must be voted on by a majority of the commission, um, what people may often be more familiar with, especially in the era of COVID, uh, is our technical assistance. That's uh, documents that are going to be put out by the chair, controlled by the chair. Um, the commission doesn't vote on it because the nature of it is supposed to be sub-sub-regulatory. It's supposed to be a fact sheet or concise summaries. Um, and therefore, it's issued solely by the chair. So our COVID technical assistance, while the commissioners certainly provide input, um, that's also really controlled by, by the chair. And in terms of deciding what we're going to move forward on, um, like I said, the, the chair does traditionally control the agenda. But in general, all the commission is um, listening to the public, listening to stakeholders, trying to be responsive to what would be helpful. Um, the COVID technical assistance certainly uh, is a great example of that. And then uh, responding to developments in the law, um, our religious discrimination guidance document that we just updated in the beginning of 2021 was a major uh, update of that after about a decade of case law developments, particularly the Supreme Court. So another example of um, how we respond to, to, to changing law. And then obviously there's a political element to the administration, um, despite us being an independent agency, uh, certainly drives some initiatives that the, the chair will move forward. And is, in terms of the agenda, is that sort of a fluid document uh, or notion as the year goes on? Is the agenda something that, hey, we're at this point in time, we're going to do the agenda for the next year and we're going to stick to it? Or is it a combination of both? 
Um, well, there's a formal regulatory agenda that agencies will put out, but uh, there's a variety of things that uh, don't necessarily appear on that, uh, depending on um, your, your thoughts about what should or shouldn't uh, show up as, as formal regulatory or akin to regulatory action. Um, so I, when I'm talking about agenda, it's it's less of a formal document and, and more was actually put up for our voting system. Um, so there's nothing kind of holding us uh, to, to that. That's uh, that's more behind the scenes. Great. Uh, and so moving over to the uh, NLRB, General Counsel Abruzzo, uh, what does your role as General Counsel entail and what is the relationship between you and the board when it comes to determining policy or decision making? Right. So the NLRB is bifurcated, <coughs> similar to the EOC, but there's a, a board side um, made up of five members. They are the adjudicators and the rule makers. Um, and then there's the uh, general counsel side, uh, and that's me, uh, just one of me. And um, I am the chief prosecutor. Um, we handle all, I oversee all of the investigations, the litigation, the settlements, the compliance work, uh, conducting of elections that are done in our 48 field offices around the country. Um, in terms of uh, memos that I issue, and I've issued uh, any number of them, I try to be very transparent in what I'm thinking and what I would like the board to reconsider. Um, those memos that I put out um, are guidance memos. Um, they are to provide um, some um, <clears throat> some uh, allow the public and particularly practitioners, employers, labor organizations and the like to know what sort of uh, cases or precedent I'm interested in having the board reconsider. Um, but that's just guidance. They're guidance memos. They're not the law until and unless the board agrees with me and ultimately adjudicates a case or engages in rulemaking um, along the lines that I've asked them to. Right, and uh, Secretary Parker, uh, similar question. How does OSHA determine what enforcement proceedings or initiatives uh, to pursue and what's your role in that process? Certainly. Uh, so our, with respect to enforcement, our, um, our cases sort of uh, break down into two types. One is, um, Unprogrammed inspections is the term we use, and that covers um, em employer reports of fatalities, serious injuries and illnesses, um, as well as uh, complaints, um, typically, but not always from, uh, from employees. Uh, and we also receive occasionally referrals, so referrals from other government agencies, uh, self-referrals if one of our, our people see something in the field or media referrals, if, if you know, if there's a, a report of something that we uh, we think is warranted to check out, and then the other broad category is um, is programmed inspections, and that is the area where we are doing uh, more proactive activities to identify uh, workplaces where uh, there's not been uh, a specific issue for us to respond to, uh, but we have uh, determined that it would be appropriate to uh, conduct a health and safety inspection at that at that worksite. Uh, and that is, those determinations are made a couple of different ways. Um, 
it really start starts in the field at the field level and area office uh, may see certain trends uh, and it has and, and a local office has the authority to develop a local emphasis program to address what they may be seeing in, in data or in, in their inspection experiences in an area. Um, that can also happen at the regional level. Um, so we have 10 regions across the country and, uh, and a region may identify that. Um, or, or it can happen at the national level. And at every level, you know, we're looking at uh, data such as our injury tracking application. That's the kind of um, summary data that uh, many employers are required to, to report to us about injury rates. Um, serious injury reports, so also required reporting on things like amputations and fatalities. Um, we look at uh, statistics that are gathered by BLS, Bureau of Labor Statistics, and then our own inspection results. Uh, and, and we develop, you know, national emphasis programs that can be based as well on a new standard. You know, for example, if we have a new standard on silica, we'll often develop a national emphasis program around that. And conduct and conduct programmed inspections you know, for that specific um, health hazard. Um, you know, we're also looking at emerging issues such as you know research that's done by by NIOSH or other information that becomes available to us. Um, you know, public public health data and occupational studies of heat or another example that were you know one of the one of the uh, things that was the impetus for our our national emphasis program on heat inspections that we um, that we initiated this past year. Um, in terms of my involvement, um, I'm involved in helping to set the direction of national policy um, and, and, and play a role in the formation of that. Um, I also have a role in um, making um, judgments about how we allocate resources. Um, you know, so among our national emphasis programs, I'll sit down with our regional administrators and we'll talk about, you know, later this, this month about, uh, you know, where uh, we're going to direct focus. Um, but at the same time, it, as I kind of implied before, there's a fair amount of autonomy within the region and local offices to do that as well. So it's, it's almost like a little bit of a federal, federal system uh, at OSHA and how those types of um, enforcement initiatives are, are set. Okay, well, so um, hopefully that was helpful in terms of giving a little bit of clarity and definition to the process uh, that the agencies have here. Let's uh, dive into some of the hot topics and initiatives uh, that have been coming from uh, the EEOC, the NLRB, and, and OSHA. Um, I've got a lot to try to cover here, so hopefully I'll get to uh, as much of this as I can. But let me start and stay with you, uh, Secretary Parker. Uh, and OSHA. We have all obviously spent a lot of time over the past couple of years talking about COVID-19 and of course uh, OSHA's ETS, the Emergency Temporary Standard for COVID-19 vaccination and testing. Where do things stand on that right now and can we expect COVID-19 specific standards to be issued moving forward? Uh, so the, the, the vaccination and testing rule uh, was the subject of a ruling by the Supreme Court that I think uh, every, everyone's probably familiar with. Um, the, the, the ruling of the court related to um, our emergency temporary standard. When we issue, uh, there's a little bit of a kind of administ 
administrative law explanation, but when we issue an emergency temporary standard, it's, it serves um, two purposes. One is that it is it, it provides immediate um, legal requirements for employers to follow with respect to the thing that we've deemed an emergency uh, and, the, and the standard, you know, the requirements in the rule. And then the other thing it does is that it stands as a proposed permanent rule. So um, as a technical matter, that um, that ETS still stands in the Federal Register as a um, as a proposed rule, um, but uh, that's its legal status. But um, there's been no no activity in that regard. We haven't worked on it. We don't we don't have any plans to do anything further with respect to the the um, um, the vaccine and testing rule. Um, with respect to um, other COVID matters, we are working diligently on completion of. Uh, a permanent standard to um, to address COVID-19 in healthcare. Um, the vaccine and testing rule was one of two emergency temporary standards we promulgated with respect to COVID-19. The other one was COVID-19 uh, illness prevention in in healthcare settings, uh, and we are um, you, know, you know we're working on finalizing that rule uh, as we speak. Um, I don't anticipate any further activity. There's nothing on our regulatory agenda with respect to COVID-19. Uh, however, we will eventually issue a broader infectious disease rule that will um, that that we intend to um, again focus on healthcare and social service sectors. Although that that will be the subject of the rulemaking process, the scope um, and um, and. Our hope is that, or our plan is that we'll have a broader, more general standard in those areas that will put us in a better position nationally than we were when COVID-19 struck for future pandemics or outbreaks. Um, and even without COVID-19 specific standards uh, or infectious disease specific standards, uh, most folks who follow OSHA and know a little bit about OSHA's scheme know that there is this thing called the general duty clause out there. Um, very briefly, what is the general duty clause uh, and what is the role of the general duty clause, if anything, when it comes to enforcement of COVID-19 issues in 2022? So the general duty clause is statutory. It's in the OSHA Act. Uh, it provides that employers have a fundamental responsibility under the Act to protect employees from recognized hazards in the workplace. And that does include a potential occupational exposure to COVID-19. Uh, over the course of the, of the COVID-19 pandemic, OSHA has enforced the general duty clause to address COVID-19 hazards and um, based on the kind of criteria that's been set in case law for how to do that, um, that A, the, the employers failed to keep the workplace free from a hazard to which employees were exposed, that it was a recognized hazard, uh, that it was likely to cause death or serious physical harm, and that there was a feasible uh, way to correct the hazard. Uh, and, and at all stages of the pandemic at the national level, the enforcement efforts uh, have been informed by, by current public health guidance to define that hazard and, uh, and identify uh, the feasible means to, to mitigate it. Um, of course, um, you know, many of your listeners may be in state plans, and, and I should note that there are states that have taken um, additional regulatory action where they have you know, OSHA-approved state plans. Uh, places like California, um, Virginia had had a rule in place uh, at one time. So, so there have been other regulatory activities in this area that um, I'm sure your listeners are aware of. But should note that it, that it goes beyond the general duty clause in some jurisdictions. 
And uh, Commissioner Lucas, uh, I want to come back to you and the EEOC. We, we certainly can't have a COVID-19 discussion uh, in any of these panels uh, without touching on the EEOC's involvement with the COVID-19 pandemic, which has been significant. Uh, religious discrimination and religious accommodation has been under the spotlight a bit more during the pandemic, and the EEOC updated its technical assistance to specifically address this issue in the context of the pandemic. Uh, I guess, first off, what prompted the commission to issue that technical assistance on this issue? Well, like I said, you know, it's really important for the commission to be responsive and provide timely advice when you've got um, such a really uh, game-changing event like the COVID-19 pandemic. And um, part of that is being responsive to seeing rising areas where discrimination and harassment might be occurring, both to prevent it as well as remedy it. Um, over the last two years, we've seen a really substantial number of religious discrimination accommodation charges related to the COVID-19 um, pandemic. And some of our action is, is naturally in response to that. The bulk of those are vaccine mandate uh, charges, most of which came in fiscal year 2022, which for us just wrapped up at the end of September. And while our, our numbers are still being reconciled for that, Things like we'll end up with multiple thousands of vaccine mandate charges, possibly close to 10,000, which I don't think will come as a surprise to anyone, given how much I'm sure many employers saw high volumes of, of vaccine mandate uh, claims. Um, and Title VII's really uh, been uh, a, you know, a lot of longstanding protection in Title VII case law, the statute, and EEOC policy about uh, reasonable re uh, religious accommodations. But we've uh, found that there was a real gap in terms of how employers were uh, responding to those uh, to those claims and those requests. Um, and it was it was increasingly clear that we needed to clarify. Uh, things to sort of uh, resurface long-standing um, policy positions. So um, that specific section was an attempt to, to respond to what we saw as a, a, a significant wave event uh, of discrimination claims. And so many questions um, that employers are asking when it comes to religious uh, accommodation, religious discrimination, again, specific to uh, the pandemic. Um, and, and I can spend so much time getting into these, but I want to whittle it down to one of the real big questions that uh, clients have spoken to us about. Employers seem to be challenged uh, quite a bit by these mass internet letters, for, for lack of a better word, uh, that some employees seem to be providing or accommodation requests that employees are being made that are based on religious positions that may or may not be factually accurate or employers may be challenging as not factually accurate. From a high-level standpoint, Commissioner, what should employers be really thinking about when addressing religious accommodation requests in order to comply with Title VII? So I could talk about this for an hour, but I'll try very much not to. Yeah. Um, and I'm always happy to talk with you more about this topic because, I, I, like I said, I could go off on it on quite a bit. But um, three high-level things to affirmatively do, and then I have a variety of do-nots. Um, take a deep dive into our religious discrimination formal policy guidance. It goes a lot deeper than our technical assistance, and it's got a lot of details on that. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions running around out there, and I think you'll have a bit of a reorientation if you run through that. 
Um, make sure you have a clear written uh, religious accommodation policy and a standardized accommodation request form. And check out our technical assistance. The EEOC's own internal accommodation form is on there if you want um, sort of a gold standard for what that form should look like. And make sure you train everyone because implementation is critical for all of these accommodation policies. Um, so those are the affirmative things. But just take a step back to um, it's really very important to not let uh, a political lens or sort of social political conflict influence how employers deal with these requests. And um, uh, because when you do, you're really going to have some problems um, of potential religious bias. Um, this needs to be a calm, neutral um, assessment, just like in the disability space. Um, so uh, I've got about 10 do nots, uh, which I think are, are instructive. Um, don't make hostile, demeaning, dismissive, harassing comments. You can find yourself really fast into religious harassment, retaliation claims. You just got to stay neutral. Don't default to a one size fits all accommodation request. Even if you're getting form letters, you've got to make it individualized. It can't be a bright line application here. Um, don't start automatically questioning the religious nature or sincerity. The default assumption should be sincerity. And then you've got to have, again, an individualized reason, an objective reason to think that you need to go further on that. Um, number four, don't assume that an overlap between political social views and religious views automatically is going to kick some out of Title VII protection. It's not. Um, it, you know, views can overlap as long as it, there's a legitimate religious basis for it as well. Um, don't assume that only religious denominations with a per se theological position against all vaccinations are the only ones who are eligible for an exemption. That's just flat out wrong. Um, a broader religious belief connected with a particular faith can then lead to a conflict with some vaccines and not others. Um, don't assume that an employee's religious objection can't be legitimate because mainstream or orthodox positions in that particular sect take it. So please do not have a no Catholics need apply for religious exemptions. I've literally seen this happen. It's per se wrong. You're going to get in trouble. We've got regulations even on this in addition to our guidance. Um, people can have unique and theological disagreements within their own religion. Um, don't require a letter from a religious authority figure that's automatically biased to traditional orthodox religions. Um, someone could certainly submit it and you might need to ask for some objective proof later on, but it can't be just a straight up requirement right off the bat. You're gonna get in trouble there. Um, don't ask people what medications they're taking. You're going to get into ADA problems in addition to Title VII problems there. You're trying to play gotcha with people's medical records. Um, you need to really tread very carefully on that. Um, and then, like I said, no bright line rules. Really, it's got to be individualized. It's got to be an interactive process just like the ADA. Um, and then finally, don't jump to unpaid leave right off the bat. That should be a last resort. So um, at, at each stage, the overarching thing is make this individualized, make it neutral, make it calm, make sure you train. Um, I think employees have really been heightened to the a possibility of religious accommodations at this point. So you've got to be uh, you know, well prepared just like you are in the ADA space. Um, I do think this is going to be, there's going to be spillover effect of this going forward. Uh, thank you, Commissioner. And I'm probably dating myself when I say this, but as a huge David Letterman fan, I can appreciate a good top 10 list. 
as much as anybody. So that was that was definitely helpful. Uh, we do appreciate that. And, and you mentioned political issues and social issues, and that's actually a great segue um, to uh, to you, General Counsel Abruzzo. Uh, one of the big challenges that we talk about and that employers are facing in 2022 is this blurring of lines between employee work life and employee personal life. Uh, it used to be, I think, that employees were not talking as much about political views, social issues on work premises or during work time, and a lot of it is spilling into each other. How does the board um, and how do you view employer action in the face of employee advocacy on social justice issues as it relates to the uh, NLRA? Right. So um, the t so we just to back up a second and give context. So the the statute protects workers' rights to engage in union and protected concerted activity. Protected concerted activity is basically collective activity for mutual aid or protection to improve your working conditions or working circumstances. And um, the Supreme Court has spoken about this um, and has said actions where you are initiating or inducing or preparing for group action um, to improve some work working condition or workplace circumstance is protected concerted activity and workers can't be retaliated against for doing so. So um, I understand, you know, there's a lot of movements out there. There's a lot of social movements out there. Um, but to the extent that social justice or racial justice or economic justice advocacy makes its way into the workplace where workers are not only discussing broad societal issues, but are also taking those broad societal issues to their workplace and saying, there are inequities here within our workplace. Will you join with me in getting those addressed? that is protected concerted activity and they cannot be retaliated against for doing so and you know we're litigating cases right now for example black lives matter cases where workers you know engaged with their co-workers about the broader societal um interests but also about specific workplace concerns that they had um and and then you know some adverse action was taken against them so that's what I would say, if there's a nexus to their interests as employees at their workplace, it's going to be protective concerted activity. Then you should. And that's what I wanted to get to. No, oh, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. And, and that's okay. the point that I wanted to make. It's not just about, I don't think you're saying employees coming into the workplace, uh, either wearing particular clothing or speaking out against social issues generally. There, there should be some nexus between that and some workplace related concern in order for it to be not only concerted activity, but protected concerted activity. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there, there would have to be a nexus to their interests as employees. <laughs> okay. And um, staying with you, General Counsel Abruzzo, um, and as current as current gets, uh, just this week, uh, you issued a memorandum concerning employer electronic monitoring and the use of artificial intelligence in certain cases. Uh, again, another issue that we could spend hours on. Um, but what prompted you to issue this memo this week? Uh, and would your uh, memo involve a reminder to the public of already existing board precedent on this issue? Or does it involve the development of a whole new legal framework by the board on this issue? 
Yeah, so, I mean, this has been a topic of discussion for a long time. Um, and, you know, as the last panel discussed, they, they, were, they were talking about AI in, in hiring practices. Uh, and I'm sure um, Commissioner Lucas could talk about what the EEOC is doing in this regard as well. But um, so, but what I'll say is, the, from my lens, uh, when you're looking at electronic monitoring or algorithmic management, we look to see whether or not it's interfering with employees' exercise of their Section 7 rights to self-organize, to join, support, or assist a union, to bargain collectively through, with a, uh, through a, a freely chosen representative, to engage in protected concerted activity, or to refrain. And <laughs> certainly we've all seen, I think we've all seen, you know, technology can now track employees' movements and their communications, everywhere, during working hours, after working hours, even in non-work areas, including their homes. Um, algorithmic management tools often um, apply production quotas or efficiency standards. So <laughs> the more intrusive the electronic monitoring is and the breakneck pace of work that is set up by automated management, I think, has a chilling effect on employees' engagement with one another over their terms and conditions of employment. <laughs> and that is their right. Their right is to communicate with one another about things that they like and things that they don't like at their workplace and the things that they may not like <coughs> to act collectively to get those changed or improved. <coughs> so, <coughs> excuse me, I will say that the board law, the current board law, <coughs> already, already speaks to violations about surveillance, impressions of surveillance, no matter what <coughs> technologies are used. <coughs> There's violations if employers institute new technologies in response to protected concerted activity <coughs> or union activity, if they use current technology to monitor union activity or protect concerted activity, if they discipline people who complain, concertedly complain about the monitoring or the pace of work, if they preclude conversations about terms and conditions of employment, if they screen applicants or discipline employees, <laughs> excuse me, based upon their protected concerted activity or union activity. <coughs> so <coughs> the, the current board law is settled. What I'm saying is, <coughs> sorry, um, the board, as always, has to adapt to the changing patterns of industrial life and has to consider now um, electronic monitoring and algorithmic management because what you don't want is that employees will be prevented from <coughs> engaging in Section 7 activities. So and, uh, if, if an employer can show that their practices are narrowly tailored to address a legitimate business need, then the board should conduct a balancing test to determine whether or not the employer's business justifications outweigh the interference to employees' Section 7 rights. And if, if that is the case, then the employer should advise <coughs> the employees of the technology it's using and what reasons it's it's doing so and 
how it's using the data. <coughs> because then, <coughs> at least employees will intelligently be able to exercise their rights to communicate with one another and take whatever precautions or appropriate measures to preclude their employer from <laughs> learning of their activities if they so choose. So this is the same sort of balancing test that I've used and, and have asked the board to use when it comes to uh, employer handbook rules and <laughs> employer workplace confidentiality rules. Where, <coughs> where an employer has a legitimate and substantial justification for a narrowly tailored rule <laughs> and that outweighs <laughs> the employee section seven rights in a particular situation. And I feel so terrible <laughs> that I'm sitting here asking you questions uh, while you're struggling, uh, but uh, you know, you, you certainly <laughs> could have canceled on us, but I appreciate you being here. I'm sorry I keep peppering you with questions. I'm gonna give you a break for a moment uh, and go back to uh, Commissioner Lucas, um, because a lot's uh, been discussed uh, by you and, and also fellow Commissioner Sonderling as well uh, on this uh, uh, artificial intelligence topic and algorithmic management, uh, because there's an implication when it comes to uh, Title VII as well, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that just like in the labor law space and the pure employment discrimination space, we have to be responsive to technology. And, um, you, you know, as Commissioner Sonderling has said of right away, you, you can't just outsource to a robot to do all of your HR decisions. You still need to stay active um, and involved in screening for bias. So the commission's still uh, deliberating, uh, uh, you know, where we're going to land in terms of future steps beyond the technical assistance we put out uh, in, in July about that. But there's, there's definitely um, EEO applications um, in a variety of ways uh, to, to discrimination, um, not just ones that involve sort of bias on the front end, whether it's not someone gets hired, but also things relating to accommodation law, um, are you uh, making it challenging for someone to either ask for an accommodation or are you uh, screening uh, and monitoring people in, in a way that doesn't take into account um, uh, their, their, their uh, accommodations that they may have been granted? Um, so there's a lot of different applications that we're uh, looking at closely and it's a priority for, I think, all of the commission to consider this space. So I want to stay uh, again on some uh, real recent developments. Um, the past few weeks, we have certainly, unfortunately, been reading and hearing a lot on uh, anti-Semitism issues, uh, prompted uh, to some degree by uh, Kanye West's recent public remarks. Last year, the EEOC unanimously approved a resolution condemning aggression and violence toward Jewish individuals. And you and, again, fellow Commissioner Sonderling even participated in an incredibly well-received webinar with the Brandeis Center on combating anti-Semitism. Is anti-Semitism more of a focus of the EEOC than it has been in recent years? Yes, I think so. Um, there's been a disturbing trend of incidents of anti-Semitism in our country and in the world in the past few years, and uh, we need to be responsive to that. Combating anti-Semitism is a very high priority for me. I'm not Jewish myself, um, but it's important for me to partner with colleagues like Commissioner Sondelik, who is Jewish. And this needs to be something that everyone cares about, um, not just isolated to 
um, uh, Jewish employees. Um, this is something that everyone really needs to care about. And I, it's very important to me that the agency rises to the occasion in the wake of, again, a, a really wave event um, that's deeply, deeply troubling. So I was proud to spearhead the resolution against anti-Semitism last uh, May. And, um, uh, you know, I'm just going to continue to try to increase awareness on that through um, everything I can. Um, you know, you note uh, uh, some celebrities' odious tweets. I will also say that uh, I've, I've seen, unfortunately, headlines across all sorts of spaces, um, including uh, a variety of celebrities. Uh, you've got leaked government uh, employees uh, making anti-Semitic and racist uh, uh, comments at the local government level. You've got a bunch of allegations about a variety of universities failing to respond to flagrant anti-Semitism that's intertwined with anti-Zionism and campus. So, you know, I guess my takeaway uh, uh, that, that I want to drive home to everyone is that um, anti-Semitism, like racism, is abhorrent and absolutely unacceptable, no matter who the alleged bad actor is. Whether they're progressive or conservative, Democrat or Republican, white or a member of a racial or ethnic group, nobody has a monopoly on the capacity for hatred, and no one has a blank check to be excused from it. So um, try to help people uh, uh, be aware that it's out there and it's, and it's not acceptable. Another issue I wanted to raise with you and, and also Secretary Parker uh, from uh, OSHA's perspectives, looks like we may be hearing, I think as we move into 2023, a little bit more in the area of accommodations when it comes to PPE uh, and masks in particular. Um, the EEOC, I believe, just recently filed a, a COVID-related case last week in Colorado against a medical company regarding religious accommodation and mask wearing. Um, while OSHA, I also believe, had previously issued an opinion letter uh, during the pandemic regarding reasonable accommodations given for certain types of masks. Uh, first to you, Commissioner Lucas, do you see this as an issue we'll be seeing more of moving forward in terms of specific accommodation requests relating to PPE? You know, I think for the last couple of years, we have seen these accommodation requests, but this is sort of the sort of next foray of the agency into COVID-related uh, litigation where you're, you're um, dealing with a specific application. Um, in the COVID context, the commissions filed uh, three lawsuits in the disability space. Uh, this one is both disability and religious accommodations. Um, occurring primarily during the, the COVID era, but also uh, even pre-existing that in terms of these accommodation requests. And, um, you know, I think it's it's uh, going to be very interesting um, litigation to, to follow. Um, uh, it's, it's a very interesting, large um, uh, group of, of uh, applicants. And, um, and I do think that uh, it's just yet another example of, of how employers need to be preparing to properly address uh, religious uh, accommodations. In that particular case, it involves PAPRs, P-A-P-Rs, um, which are purified air respirators, an alternative type of uh, masking or, or uh, uh, respirators. And, um, you know, uh, one sort of additional source uh, where we overlap with OSHA is that OSHA opinion letter, which I thought was helpful. But I do want to stress that 
um, from my perspective, these were longstanding religious accommodation requirements. So um, the OSHA opinion letter, I think, is complementary to what was sort of longstanding um, uh, obligations. It's, it's important for me to not set policy or do gotchas through litigation, but here um, I think it was a pretty longstanding classic uh, principles of, of religious accommodation requirements that lead to the novel application here. And Secretary Parker, I know OSHA, uh, again, has been uh, addressing masks uh, and, and employee use of masks. Yeah, I, the only thing I, I mean, I, I agree with that. The only thing that I would add is that I, I think employers um, can expect more requests simply because there's a greater awareness of the of respiratory protection and its importance, um, whether that's COVID or whether it's a recognition of uh, the need for protection due to other hazards like silica, uh, which is quite common in construction settings and, and um, um, you know, workshops that deal with engineered stone and that sort of thing. So um, so I, I expect that, that employers will see more requests as there's, you know, because I think we, we just have a moment where there's more um, awareness of that. Um, and I think it's important for them to understand sort of, you know, when, when our respiratory standard applies and, and when it doesn't, which is, you know, a factor um, that they need to understand. No question. Um, so let's move on. And, and uh, again, I'd, I'd love to spend uh, so much more time talking about so many other issues. Um, and, and hopefully we'll have a different form to be able to do that. I know uh, Commissioner Lucas, General uh, Counsel Abroza, uh, uh, you've been uh, gracious enough to show up on my podcast as well. And there's my shameless plug of the day. Um, I host a podcast, Employment Law Now. So for those of you who do not uh, subscribe to it. It's free. You can get it anywhere. You can get podcasts, uh, including at employmentlawnow.com. Uh, I'd love to get uh, even more subscribers. Um, but I want to ask this question because I think it's important for um, purposes of employers and employees alike. You know, rightly or wrongly, many companies uh, have developed a belief that government agencies typically uh, lean uh, pro-employee or they're anti-employer. Uh, and in many cases, a lot of them think, hey, it's difficult for us to guide our behavior based on rules that may change with the shifting political winds um, when the administrations in Washington change. Um, what's your reaction, Secretary Parker, to this notion of, hey, these government agencies are just all about pro-employee and, you know, we're behind the eight ball as an employer? Um, well, I... I um you know, I, I, I do hear that critique. I also hear plenty from um, employees who, who say that the laws are not effective enough and that they, um, you know, that, and, and in fact, we, you know, one of the things we're dealing with is a trust gap uh, that we need to address, particularly with vulnerable workers. Um, so I think, um, I think we, I think we deal with those kind of, kind of uh, perceptions on both sides, which I think it's probably helpful for people to understand um, you know, we um, employers certainly think of us as a primarily as a as an enforcement agency, um, and and I, I well I it's important that that we're focused on how we use all of our enforcement tools and that we're using them as effectively as possible. Um, we also do recognize the importance of going beyond enforcement because in terms of changing health and safety culture, it's important for employers to go beyond mere compliance and that they have strong health and safety management systems. So we do look for opportunities 
to work through with employers through alliances, through outreach programs, um, for smaller employers in particular, through our consultation program where uh, we can provide we provide free assistance to um, to, to workplaces on compliance, and um, and we have a number of tools on our website like the Safe and Sound campaign uh, that really promote that idea. And and we'll never walk away from a strong enforcement stance, but um, but there's a lot more to OSHA than that. And it's and one of my goals while I'm here is to is to uh, remind employers of that fact. Well, thank you for that. And uh, Commissioner Lucas. Same question, what's your reaction to those who say, hey, the EEOC is uh, just pro-employee um, and uh, it's hard to develop rules internally when the rules seem to change with the changing political winds? What's your reaction to that? Well, you know, I've been a practitioner on the other side uh, not that long ago, so I can, I can sympathize with, with those concerns, but my goal is to um, try to, to make sure we're balanced. Um, we're not a supersized plaintiff's uh, firm. Uh, we're a government regulator. We're, uh, we're supposed to be, I think, um, a, a unique category. And you know, fundamentally, the EEOC's mission is to both prevent and remedy employment discrimination. So I view employers and employees as um, uh, both of our core constituencies. Um, and I also think that they really can be complementary. I believe that sincerely because I think that that the best way to protect a worker is to prevent employment discrimination from ever happening. And the only way you're going to do that is by both educating employees and employers to try to get it right. Um, so, um, you know, employers uh, should expect robust uh, uh, efforts to remedy discrimination when it's happened. But um, if we can find ways to prevent discrimination, harassment from happening, that's good for everyone, good for business, good for employees. So um, that, that's my goal, try to hit that balance. That's a great point. And uh, General Counsel Abruzzo, uh, I am uh, reluctant to, to go back. I hope you're doing okay over there. But do you, do you get that criticism as well that uh, the board, um, that your memos um, seem to indicate, you know, too much of a pro-employee position and, and what are employers supposed to do? So I, I got some more tea, but um, so hopefully I'll be able to get through this. Um, so uh, like um, both Doug and Andrea, I will say we get criticisms from both from all sides. Um, uh, so as Doug said, um, but um, as Andrea points out, you know, my goals are not only to protect the rights of workers, we are a, I mean, all of us it, are enforcing a worker protection statute or statutes. So inevitably it's going to be pro-worker, but it's not pro-employer and it's not pro-union, at least in my, from my standpoint. It is pro-worker though, that's just our congressional mandate. However, to Andrea's point, in addition to protecting and enforcing our respective statutes, the big key is education, because what you want to do is deter violations from occurring in the first instance. And you can only do that if you're educating everybody about the rights and the responsibilities under the various statutes. And for, for my purposes, I mean, we, we, along with DOL and EEOC, have engaged with employers during anti-retaliation summits that we put together to advise employers about our statutes and <coughs> what, 
what their what the rights of workers are and what the obligations are. We worked with DOL and FMCS to come up with a small business association toolkit so that small businesses understand rights under the various statutes. Because unfortunately, way too often, we see inadvertent violations by employers who think because they don't have a represented workforce that the NLRA, the NLRB does not have jurisdiction over them. And the vast majority of the cases that are brought to us have to do with protected concerted activity, not union activity. And so it's really important for workers, I mean, for employers in particular, to understand what the statute protects and what their obligations are so that they just don't inadvertently violate the law. Because as Andrea said, the best case scenario is that no one vi violates the law and that promotes industrial stability, it diminishes workplace conflict, and that's what we're all trying to accomplish. And in our last uh, two minutes that we have, um, I have one final sort of rapid fire question that I want to uh, close with each of you. Um, and I'll start with you, uh, General Counsel Abruzzo. Um, are there certain areas of priority that we can expect to see from the NLRB in 2023 looking ahead? Well, um, I just put out my most recent priority, but um, in terms of my guidance memos, but um, I think what we will, what, what everyone should anticipate is uh, more board rulemaking and more board decisions coming out because we, that may um, change current precedent or may not, I, I have no idea, but I presume they'll tackle uh, some of the, the, the thorny issues um, because, uh, you know, there's the, the board members terms are staggered. And so, you know, one board member is going to drop off and well, one John rings going to drop off in December. Another one's going to drop off in August another. So I think before they leave, you'll, we'll, we'll see a flurry of, of activity at the board. Thank you. And as a, as a parting word, uh, secretary Parker, are there areas of priority we can expect to see from, uh, from OSHA in 2023. Sure, so we, we are doing rulemaking. So in addition to COVID, we anticipate completing the, our changes to our electronic record keeping rule on illnesses uh, in the coming year. In, in the area enforcement, we'll continue our heat initiative. We expect a lot of work in construction with, um, with infrastructure activities, particularly with new, less experienced workers in the workplace. We think that's gonna require a lot of attention uh, aware, we're anticipating a warehousing initiative uh, in the coming year, continuing our outreach to vulnerable workers, um, and um, finding ways to incentivize health and safety management systems with employers um, through outreach efforts, as well as you know tinkering with our policy making to see how we can um, how we can you know uh, incentivize. As I said. Terrific. And uh, we look forward to uh, having further discussion with you about that uh, as we move into the new year as well. Commissioner Lucas, I give you the last word in the final minute. Um, are there areas of priority uh, that we can expect to see uh, out of the EEOC as we move into 2023? Well, I'd say stay tuned because we're in the middle of our strategic enforcement plan process. And uh, right now you have an opportunity to, to comment on that by sending an email to SEP2022, doc.gov. 
Um, but the commission also unanimously agreed to publish our draft SEP when it's ready in the Federal Register for a formal public comment, which I think will be very helpful. Um, uh, so when that uh, plan is ready, uh, it'll uh, you know, keep your eyes out for your opportunity to publicly comment on that. Um, so that, that'll be driving the commission's priorities uh, in that. Of course, each commissioner is going to have their own priorities that they're, they're, they're interested in talking about, um, might include a pretty wide area, religious liberty, accommodation issues, women in the workplace, age discrimination, and then also complex and emerging issues related to race discrimination. So I've got a, a lot that I'm looking at myself. No, we appreciate you uh, coming on as always to talk about those, and we look forward to talking with you further about that too. Um, EEOC Commissioner Andrea Lucas, um, OSHA Secretary uh, Doug Parker, and uh, NLRB General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo, I can't thank you enough uh, for coming on and speaking with all of us about some real important issues. I hope to have the opportunity to do that again in the near future. Um, as fast as this hour went, at least for me, uh, so did the last two days of our second annual Cozen O'Connor Employer Summit dealing with new workplace challenges. And on behalf of all of us in Cozen's Labor and Employment Department, I want to thank you all for joining us today uh, and really for both days. Well, that was really terrific. As always, I appreciate so much all three of them coming on and talking with us. Um, I hope you found something in there, if not all of it, some productive to take back to your organizations. I hope everybody continues to stay well and healthy, and until the next time, I also hope all of your labor is productive.